Are you an athlete who would like to maximize your performance to succeed at the top level? Head on over to my website at jacobandre.com and book a free 15-minute discovery call to discover if and how I can help you. G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. Today, I'm talking to Heidi Thompson. Heidi, welcome to the show. Hey, Jacob, how are you going? I'm really good. One of the things I like to ask our guests first up, and I'm pretty keen to hear what you're going to say on this one, is what did we interrupt in your day today? Oh, not a lot, Jacob. <laughs> I'm on, That's not what I expect I'm you on... to say. <laughs> on holidays. Today? Oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, so... you know what? I, I did a little run this morning. I took the dog for a run and then went into the pool. So I had a really relaxing morning, actually. Oh, that sounds awesome. I, I feel like, So we're recording this on a Friday before AFL Grand Final um, weekend, and this is going to come out on the Monday. So it's going to come out a couple of days after the grand final, which will be really interesting. <laughs> okay. But I fully expected you to say that we interrupted your packing for, you know, as a Lions fan, that you'd be like, you know, packing the scarves. Uh, packing was done long ago. As soon as <laughs> I got in the grand final, I'd already packed my bag a couple of days ago. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> have, so how long have you been a Brisbane Lions supporter for? Oh, geez. You know what? Well, growing up in Brisbane, AFL wasn't really number one. Rugby league was there and then probably union. AFL was probably third or fourth down the list. So I guess through the 2000s, through their uh, peak time of winning, I think, three premierships um, at the time, I, d- I definitely jumped on the bandwagon um, around that time. So, yeah, it's probably been 20-odd years or maybe a little bit longer. And then I was lucky enough to coach the Brisbane Lions Academy um, so I had to be a fan then. I had to be a supporter, uh, regardless of where my loyalty might have laid in um, in AFL. So yeah, I was I was pretty much destined to be a Lions supporter, and I'm absolutely pumped. It'll be my first grand final at the G with my team playing. Oh, it actually gave me goosebumps. That's actually pretty cool. So where were you, and what were you doing through 2001, two and three when they won those three premierships? Um, I was actually, where was I? I would have been through uni. So um, early days, oh, probably would have been third year uni. And I guess I jumped on the the AFL train and the Lions train through all of the success. I know it sounds terrible because people are like, you should just be loyal regardless of whether they're winning or not. But at the time, like when I was growing up in my teenage years, it was all Broncos, even though the Broncos have made the grand final as well. So it's absolute party time in Brisbane at the moment. Um, so the Broncos had a pretty good period there and then they fell away and then the Lions kind of took over. So it was um, it was pretty good times around uni times. of yeah, I saw plenty of games at the Gabba with the Lions. So pretty cool. Yeah, it's going to be crazy in Brisbane this week, I imagine. And if both teams win, it'll be oh, amazing. Hectic. Yeah, I'm I'm flying down to Brisbane next week on Tuesday to drop my son back to boarding school, and I'm kind of hoping that the Lions and the Broncos win, just because I can only imagine what Brisbane's going to be like. Brisbane Town will be pumping for at least a week. Oh uh, yeah, Captain Street will be going off. The pubs will be going through 24 hours of just everyone going crazy. I'm actually a Broncos fan in the NRL, and the reason why is because when they were real successful in the early 90s, I was in primary school, and they did a tour after they won the premiership, and they brought their cup to our school. And so since then, just simply for the fact that they made the effort to come to little old Darwin and show the premiership cup with some of the players, I'm now a Broncos supporter, and I can only imagine how many other people around the country are. Are you a Broncos fan in the rugby, or you don't really follow rugby? 
Well, you know what? Since moving up here, I must admit I've watched very little rugby league. Um, but growing up, diehard, I'm actually a Blues supporter, um, was born in New South Wales, and then um, half my family's Queensland, born in Queensland, and half are, from, are born in New South Wales. So around origin time, it was always pretty prickly. <laughs> Um, one ha- like area of the household was blue and the other area was maroons. <laughs> but, yeah, I was always a Broncos supporter growing up. It was definitely the number one sport that I had through primary school and even high school. It was really only, yeah, like late teens into my early 20s where I started to fall in love with the game of AFL. So what's the plan for this weekend then down in Melbourne, hopefully with the Brisbane Lions winning the premiership? Do you know what? Like, If we win the premiership, that'll be just absolute icing on the cake. But I'm really excited about hearing 90-odd thousand people in a stadium. I've never – I mean, the Gabba holds 30 at best. I've never been at a stadium full when it's like that. And Collingwood supporters are just going to be <laughs> mental, no doubt. I'm in the Lions area, so I'm, I'm fortunate I'm not going to get, I don't know, <laughs> thrown out or anything. Um, but yeah, the plans are pretty pretty loose. I've got lots of mates down there through coaching a lot of footy, um, people who have relocated. So I'm going to try and catch up with a lot of um, mates that live in Brizzy who are flying down for the game as well. Um, yeah, nothing really set in stone. I'm literally getting on the plane at, I think it's 2 a.m., um, get in at 7 a.m., and then um, probably straight to the ground or straight to the area where it's all just going to be crazy hackers. Oh, it's going to be awesome. You're probably not going to sleep on the plane. I think you'd be too excited and then it's nah. just straight into it by the sounds of it. Yep, that's it. That's the plan. <laughs> so let's go right back to young Heidi. Tell us the Heidi Thompson story. Uh, how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Darwin, I definitely would not have thought when I was in primary school or even going through uni that I would end up in the NT. Um, but it's crazy how things twist and turn. For me, just massive sports fan, watch any sport, play a lot of sport. Um, I actually was a tennis player growing up. That was my number one sport. And I've got a bit of tennis elbow at the moment, which I find hilarious because I haven't played tennis for probably 15 years. And uh, anyway. How would you get that? Elbow. I've actually got tennis elbow at the moment myself. Yeah. How did you get that? Well I, well, I think it was golf and a bit of fishing. <laughs> <laughs> has kind of triggered it but yeah it was funny when I was chatting to the physio because I said 15 20 years ago I can understand having tennis elbow because I was playing at a pretty high level and fairly regularly um but now I'm like how maybe it's just getting old Jacob I've resigned to the fact that you get a little bit old and your body starts to (laughs) shut down a little bit and it's probably all the sport I played as as a kid so I did a lot of um catching too many fish to tell you the truth well, yeah, I am on the fishing bandwagon as well. There's definitely – I've got the bug. Um, but, yeah, I played a lot of individual sports, interestingly, as a kid, like heaps of running, cross-country. I was an 800-metre runner back in the day um, and a lot of tennis. I didn't play a lot of team sports, which was when I first started playing footy and I played a little bit of touch football and soccer and those sort of games. I found it really hard, actually, because – in individual sports, as you know, it's very much the buck stops with you. You can you just go, okay, well, I'm going to own it. I've made a mistake or an error or whatever. I haven't trained well enough. And you can kind of understand that playing in a team sport, I really struggled with the fact that if we lost because of an error that someone else made, <laughs> I had to really pull myself in and, um, and just go, no, it's a team sport. Everyone's in it <laughs> for the same reason. <laughs> no one means to make an error. 
So that was a good learning for me. I played a lot of Gaelic football. Actually, I played a lot more Gaelic football before AFL. In fact, in Queensland, there's a huge contingent of Irish. And um, in Brizzy, where I lived, it was it was huge. Gaelic football was absolutely massive. So I played um, over in New Zealand and um, represented Queensland a number of times in Gaelic footy well before I ever touched a, an AFL ball. And then um, after uni, I ended up going overseas. So I went over to London and taught over there for around three and a half to four years. And it was a three-month sort of stint that I had in my head, three months of like go overseas and see what it's all about. And then four years later, I end up coming home. So it was was interesting. And my first proper day of teaching in the UK was at a school in Slough. I don't know whether you know much about the UK, but it's kind of a bit Ali G country. Anyway, it's (laughs) like proper dodgy country and I had to get the train down it was about a 45 minute train ride and wow that was an eye-opener that's where I got a lot of my behavior management strategies from (laughs) Um, so yeah lots of sport growing up and then did my teaching degree went overseas and had a wow of a time absolutely loved it loved to get back traveling again now COVID's died down a bit I think that'll probably be on the agenda Um, but I'm so glad I went over and, and did that and then on the way home, I travelled through South America for about four months and New Zealand for around about two. And then I travelled Australia because what I found overseas was I was really embarrassed because people would say to me, oh, what's um, Uluru like? What's uh, Fraser Island like? What's Perth like? And every time I'd say, you know what, I've never been there. So I made it a mission of mine when I got back into the country that I would spend six months going around Australia and that's what I did um, and then landed back in Brizzy with family and um, ended up teaching at a school called Kenmore State High School for around 11 years in Brisbane. Um, and then throughout my teaching, I needed something else to keep me motivated and that's where coaching came into it. Um, and I started to um, coach some teams and then <laughs> reckon probably started at a community level so a couple of clubs in in Queensland Wilson Grange is where I finished my footy um with AFL and then started to go into the pathway of, of coaching and then I was really lucky to jag a gig at the Lions I was coaching for about four and a half five years just at a metropolitan level so you've got metropolitan west and east and north in um in Brisbane and so I was coaching a, rep, a regional team there for a number of years and got an opportunity to coach the Lions Academy. And I can say that we were undefeated for three years. <laughs> we never got beaten. Yeah, we played the Swans Academy and we played the Giants Academy, played the Suns a whole heap of times. Um, so that was that was really cool. And I guess that gave me a taste for coaching. And I knew that teaching probably wasn't something that I was going to do forever in a day. And I thought... Um, yeah, what better opportunity than come up here? The job came up just randomly and my partner said, apply for it, go for it. And, um, and yeah, got it, got the job to come up here and coach the Anti-Thunder Academy in the VFL and also the, um, yeah, the younger kids as well, 16s through to under 18s. And then COVID hit, of course, Jacob, in 2020 and I was back in the classroom. 
just with yourself in Darwin yep. High, and then um, and now I'm working at um, at a middle school in Darwin. Yeah, awesome. That's a crazy good story. So, what was your role at the Lions Academy? Were you head coach, or was it a different role? Yeah. Yeah, head coach. So it was the under-18 academy, so under-18 kids. But I worked a lot with the boys as well. We had a um, under-18 boys academy. So all the coaches would pull resources together and we'd do a lot of, um, yeah, times where we'd coach together and, and train together. And then, um, yeah, for those three years, I was appointed head coach um, and I learned so much and I worked a lot. Actually, I did, I was an assistant coach for the Queensland under-18 team as well. So a little bit You've got your, your Suns Academy and your Lions Academy and then they pick a, um, a Queensland under-18 team. And I went away four years in a row, I think it was. So I worked directly under Stasevich, so Craig Stasevich, who's the Lions coach and has been since the um, start of AFLW. He's probably the longest coach in the AFLW, maybe. Um, and I learned plenty off him and, yeah, had lots of opportunities that he gave me and put me in a really good position to get the job up here. What would you say is the biggest thing that you learned from that experience with the Lions? Biggest thing I learned was um, understanding people. Stas is a so Craig Stasovich, he's a teacher as well by trade. And he said it's all about building relationships and you can know everything you can want to know about coaching footy or coaching a sport. Um, but if you don't have the relationships with the players, you're not going to get anywhere. And that's why he's been so successful. He gives everyone the time of day. He always responds to messages. You know, those little things for a head coach for a big club like the Lions, um, yeah, makes people feel special. And I think that was really important, getting that balance right. And that's put me in a really good position, even as a teacher as well, um, knowing how vital it is to build those relationships. Yeah, so when you then came to Darwin to take on the Thunder uh, squad team and academies, what were the similarities and differences that you found between your experiences at the Lions and in Queensland football in more in general? There were a lot of similarities, but there were also stark differences as well. <clears throat> the first thing that I noticed was the professionalism in the way of facilities. So back then, even the men in the Lions didn't have a facility as good as TIO. Um, they, in fact, they were working out of the Gabba um, which we, we trained at the Gabba and we were able to use some of the facilities there, but mainly we were actually training at Yoronga. So I'm talking about the men as well. We're yeah. talking um, some of the players that probably aren't in the team currently for this weekend, but not that long ago they were training at community grounds because they just simply couldn't get on the Gabba. So for me it was pretty cool to come to TIO and have that at your disposal. you got your ice bars, you got your gym, you've got your conference room or meeting room. That was... Um, that was really cool. And to have a well-being um, person, sports condition, uh, sorry, SNC, so strength and conditioning coach, and um, lots of really amazing people that knew their craft really well. So for me at the Lions Academy, we had lots of people that were very much, um, that was their expertise, but we simply didn't have the facilities that we have up here. We're very blessed. I don't know whether... You've compared much across um, Australia, but it's it's right up there in the way of when you're looking at academies, there wouldn't be too many academies floating around that could boast um, the Michael Long Centre and, and TIO as their home ground. Um, and the differences were around um, the challenges with remote. 
I remember running a remote camp. It was an under-16 remote camp. I'll never forget it because it was surreal. We had girls coming in from uh, Croker Island. We had girls coming in from um, Nullumboy. Um, we had girls coming in, obviously, from Tiwi, Alice Springs, um, like larger Manu area, like amazing. Just they didn't speak a lick of English, a lot of them, and they had um, they usually had some of their carers that could speak a little bit of English, and nearly all of them had no shoes. And I was just like blown away at their talent. They could kick bananas from the boundary with no shoes on. They could do things that no girls that I've coached before could even dream of, really. <laughs> like growing up in Queensland, a lot of the girls I coached were quick. They played touch footy or they played rugby and they didn't really have great foot skills. But up here, totally different. The, these 14, 15-year-old girls that I was coaching couldn't understand me but <laughs> could just run around and do things that, yeah, I think – girls over in other states would just absolutely die for those sort of skills yeah that's awesome so working with the uh thunder girls in the vfl competition what was that like yeah i must admit it was um it was a real it was exhausting not not just because of the travel but it was 24 7 you've got like my my main role was actually the academy and the VFLW role was really probably, it was supposed to be about 20% of my, let's say, salary. But because it was a team that the public, they, they wanted to be successful, and, and I understand that definitely, there was a lot of criticism and scrutiny and it was, it was tough. Like it wasn't easy. I, bloody, I loved it. I would still be doing it definitely right now if COVID didn't hit and we didn't pull the teams. Um, well, I hope I would be. Because it really tested every every ounce of your patience and your like my coaching ability went up absolutely yeah through the roof because I had to be on my game all the time and I think I travelled twenty six weekends of that first year out of fifty two weeks I was either in Melbourne or on the Gold Coast or in Sydney and um, that was really tough like yeah I mean I don't mind travelling but. It was it, it made me see what it would be like to be a professional um, AFL player or a professional coach because um, that's what you have to do. You, you just make those sacrifices and you're travelling and then as soon as you get back, you're reviewing vision. Like if you look at my week for VFL, um, when the VFL season was on, because we're in the Territory and all of the games except for probably four or five were fixtured in Melbourne, there, were, there was one in Alice Springs and then I think there was three up here at TIO. Um, so I knew I was going to be in for a pretty long slog. But my, my week kind of consisted of like a Monday through to Thursday. Obviously, you've got your training days. You've got reviewing vision. I'm also tapped into Adelaide Crows. So I've got players from the Adelaide Crows who are playing in my squad who need to see what we're doing here in Darwin. And we need to see what they're doing. So they were on like Skype calls. It was just like mind blown. Um, and then you name your team on like a Thursday night. You travel on a Friday red eye. You play at about midday, two o'clock-ish on a Saturday to then get back on a um, on a Sunday crappy flight again. <laughs> so you stay the Saturday night, get back usually on the red eye, and I'm back in at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. on a Monday, and then you just do it all over again. 
Monday, you're looking at team selection for the next week. And it was just like Groundhog Day. But, yeah, it's not for everyone, Jacob. I think it's there's definitely a certain breed that can do that. And it tested every ounce of, yeah, what I had to offer in the coaching space, that's for sure. Yeah, I bet. So what do you think was the hardest thing about all of that, the Groundhog Day nature of it? like the monotony, the travel and just the fatigue of the travel, not seeing family, like what would you say is probably the top of the list? Oh, yeah, definitely put a strain on my relationship. Um, it was tough because you get, I'd get home and it would just be my phone would be mental. That's what I meant before when I said staffs would always respond to a message. I'd have hundreds of messages on Messenger, on um, like just a text message, then phone calls. And I, yeah, it was really, it was really hard prioritizing all of that. And then on top of that, I had the academy to run. So it was really important for me to make sure that they got a bit of care as well, because they're our future and I need to invest that time in them. But a lot of the energy was into the the VFLW team, given that it had a lot more public exposure. It was more in the, in the news, um, around social media, NT news, that sort of stuff. I did media probably three times a week. Um, where I'd be on ABC pretty regularly and then um, NT News, Gray Morris would be ringing me, asking for an interview and then there'd usually be some someone else, some other um, radio place that would be ringing, asking for what's happening this week and who's, who's the ins and outs. So, yeah, it was prioritising the time for me was the hardest thing, that time management. Um, but I loved it. Like, don't get me wrong, it wasn't, it wasn't monotonous at all. It was definitely Groundhog Day in the way of, Saturday flight, Sunday red eye, get back, and then it starts all over again. But every day was different. On a Monday, you'd be throwing a curveball from Alice Springs. You think you've got one of your centre-half forwards ready to go, and then they ring saying, oh, she's bunged her ankle, um, not available. And then you're thinking, okay, who's going to fill that void? And then it's just every day there's something that pops up that you've got to think pretty flexibly with. And for me, that was that was good because that meant that I had different a different skill set that I was developing um, and adapting. If that program was to get up and running again post COVID, and you were offered the job again and go back, what would you do differently? That's a great question. Um, I think from the get go, I had real reservations around combining the role. And um, I knew at the time the AFL actually, they funded my my role. I don't know whether you know, but that, that role, there was no other role like it in the whole of Australia. So my role was called NT Thunder Women's Academy Manager. Now, everywhere else in every other state and territory, there was just an, a um, state academy coach or a manager, which is one person. There was never a person for just the women it was usually a person that that looked after both victoria is obviously a little bit different so when when i came up here and took on that role i did say um i think this is going to be tough because there was quite a bit of crossover my under 18 academy they actually um and then i ended up getting the central allies coach head role as well so in that year i coached three teams um all at the the highest level i guess for their age group and I probably bit off a bit more than I could chew. So I would, I would definitely go back to the administration and say um, I would do it if I was just this coach or just that coach. 
I think combining the two was always going to be really tricky. Yeah. So you obviously with COVID lost that position because they were all stood down with, I think, promises of coming back at some point um, potentially, but no one knew what was happening. So there's a lot of positions that were kind of like stood down or put on hold. As you mentioned at the start, we met through teaching. So you then come back to teaching to do relief teaching. Then what? What happens post Thunder Women's um, Mm. Manager? Yeah, I really only was doing relief teaching in the interim. There was never any thought in my mind that I'd be back full-time teaching. I thought at the time, before COVID, the the teams were pulled. I don't know whether you know the timeline, but at the time um, the CEO pulled both the men and the women's Thunder um, program and they said we're going to invest in grassroots and invest in our under-18s, which obviously... um, you know, I'm not going to get into the politics around it, but it put a lot of people offside, including the players, because we have players who are over 18 and they think, well, where's my pathway now? Do I have to move into state? Um, and then obviously the partnership with the Gold Coast started. So there is still a pathway in that over 18 space. But at the time, I, I was very concerned or confused as to how it might look because, yeah, you're right, everyone, probably around 30-odd staff, we had around 65 to 70 staff at AFLNT at the time and around about half to probably 60% were stood down and then there was just a skeleton staff that um, kept things going. But to be honest, there wasn't really a lot going on anyway because no one could train, no one could go out of the house, you know, all that sort of stuff. We had restrictions on Um, So it didn't really matter too much. But then obviously when footy came back in, that's when we needed to work out, well, how will it look? Um, And that role didn't really exist. It does exist now. It's come back on. Um, Not not my actual role. NT Thunder Women's Academy Manager is kind of no longer. The AFL pulled that funding straight away as soon as COVID hit. And I knew the writing was on the wall. That wasn't a shock at all. Um, but I guess coming back into the under-18 space, someone needed to do that. So our talent team went from about 10 to 12 people, if you include you know, your physios and your doctors, down to three. So we had um, an academy manager, which was Jason Rowe, and then we had an academy um, a talent manager and one other person, which was Maury, our SNC who's still there. So 10, 10 to 12 people went down to three and then obviously other jobs came up, but it, it was too late. That was a good year and a half later before those sort of jobs became, again, advertised again. Um, so I couldn't wait a year and a half thinking, what will I do? I guess that's why I got into the the red and white here in the Waratah Footy Club um, because I wanted to stay connected with football. I did a bit of one-on-one coaching um and then did some relief work as well and in that time I realized okay I'm gonna have to go back into the this full-time teaching to pay the mortgage and pay all my bills but I was still in the back of my mind thinking how do I keep connected with footy and coaching so I'm glad you mentioned that nice little segue into Waratah Footy Club tell me (laughs) about that uh, decision making process uh to get back into it and how it all happened yeah, well, I was actually playing at Pint. 
So um, when I was working at AFLNT, I actually played at Pint Footy Club because it was at Marara. And I just played in the Div 1 at the time. I think I think it was called Reserves at the time. Anyway, I wasn't playing in the top-level team. I didn't want to. I more just wanted to stay fit and active and stay connected to a club. So I didn't have any affiliation with any club at all. Um, I knew a lot of people at Waratahs. I also know a lot of people at Buffs, Nightcliffe. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It was more around just convenience. So I, I played at Pint for a season. And they had huge numbers. They still do. <laughs> so I felt pretty bad um, that I was kind of playing and some girls were missing out on games entirely. And so that's where it all came about, really. I said to Pint, you don't need extra players. In fact, you probably need to put some players off to Wanderers or Palmerston or something like that with um, teams that are struggling. And at the time, um, Lisa Roberts was my um, captain for VFLW at the Thunder. And everything was starting to, I guess, finish up. COVID had hit by then. I wasn't working at AFLNT. And um, Robbo said, why don't you come down to Tars? You know everyone anyway. Come down, not to coach, just to play. I said, sure. Okay. So I came down and as it turned out, I did a little bit of coaching on the side. Robbo would ask for advice and show me vision and we'd sit down and we did a couple of chats throughout the season, which I hope was beneficial for her. It was also good for me because it kept me connected in the space without officially having a role. Um, and then um, the following year, we Robbo was talking to me and um, she ended up having a coach that year. It was really last minute. The coach that we had at the time um, let the club know, I think the week before round one, that she wouldn't be able to coach. So Robbo was just thrown into it. And so I, I became a bit like a mentor, I guess. Um, for her and then she said next year why don't you coach the girls so I thought about it had a good chat to my partner um, and it was something that I knew was going to be time consuming and take a lot invest a lot of my time into it and it, I wasn't going to get the financial gain that I got at AFL and TV that's not why you coach never <laughs> like you're never going to get the money back for the amount of times that you're traveling or away from your family and friends but, yeah, we both agreed that it was a good opportunity to, to have a crack um, and then ended up signing a three-year deal with Waratah Footy Club. And so I'm into my third season, yeah, essentially. About to start the third season. About two-year pre-season. We're about six weeks in or seven weeks, actually. This is week seven of pre-season. And um, round one starts on Friday next week. So before we get into talking about how this preseason has gone and your hopes for this season, tell me about the first two seasons. Where did you finish up in the first season and then in the second season? And was it all what you expected? Yeah, I think um, the year before I started coaching was the first year that the Waratah Footy Club in the women hadn't made finals. So there was a lot of, um, yeah, we had a bit of player movement really. To be blunt, we had players move because they were used to success and winning and we weren't winning. Um, Paul Robbo was thrown in and had to coach Div 1 Women's Premier League and play and captain the club. And it was just too much for her. She did a great job. She did the best that she could. But that's not right to have one player with so much responsibility. So she felt really quite deflated about not making finals Um and I thought this is a good opportunity to come into a club that maybe hasn't had the success that they expected. 
I mean, Waratahs has won, I think, nine premierships, eight or nine. I've seen them around the clubhouse and I've counted them up. I think it's around about that. So they've, they've done pretty well. Like, really, they're a successful club and I think it got to the point where they just expected to make finals every year. Um, and with the player movement, I think that really did – it had an impact for sure. So when I came in that first year, my expectations, not that they weren't high, but my expectations, I never talked to the girls about winning or premiership or there was no um, terminology like that because I knew that we were going to have to rebuild. And that's what I talked about. We're rebuilding. We're rebuilding. Um, In my head, I thought if we make finals, that's probably a tick. And as it turned out, we somehow managed um, in that first season that I coached with a group of players that probably didn't have a lot of synergy, um, wasn't very skillful. We'd lost some of our more skillful players. We still had some skillful players, but we had a lot of players who were new to the sport, really good athletes, but um, needed a fair bit of fine-tuning with their fundamental skills. So that first year, um, we had a really topsy-turvy start to the season. And then to actually make finals... And to then almost make um, a grand final, it was actually pretty amazing in the end. I know that I spoke to Robbo and a lot of the leadership group about it and they were mystified as to how we did it Um, because really... jump in there. How how did you do it? I think that um, not focusing on winning was a a big contributor because I think that the club, um, you know, Colleen Gwynn, coached that club to lots of premierships and there was a winning culture and there was a um, a culture around, I guess, win at all costs, let's call it. And I'm certainly not a coach that would spruik that at all. In fact, I'd like to not win at all costs. <laughs> I'd like to be a, a club and a team that does the right thing and plays in a really good spirit and doesn't play to... Um, take advantage of clubs that are maybe struggling. Not not saying that Tars were like that back in the day, but I feel like maybe that was the mindset of a lot of the girls. So I think changing the mindset around rebuilding, I use the word rebuilding a lot. So therefore there was little pressure. Players felt like, well, if we win, that's a bonus. If we develop our skills, if we come together as a group, if we um, have a bit of a three- to five-year plan, that's a far better mindset to be in rather than win, 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 have to win the premiership, which I think has probably been the way that it's been at Tars for a very long time. So I don't know whether that's the only reason. I think there were we were very lucky. We had lots of games that we were just in the right place at the right time with some of our recruits coming in at the right time, some of our players um, being able to be injury-free, like little things like that that they count for a lot. So it's- yeah. Are you an Aussie rules footballer who would like to maximise your performance to succeed at the top level? My Australian rules football dynamic group coaching program is a 12-phase program that has been curated from my 15-plus years working as a strength and conditioning coach with local footballers right through to AFLW players at Adelaide and Richmond. To get instant access to my Australian rules football dynamic group coaching program, simply head on over to jacobandre.com forward slash Australian dash rules dash football. You know what? 
you've, you made me just realise that I hear that a lot. I speak to a lot of coaches, from strength and conditioning coaches to head football coaches and everything in between. And one of the things that you hear, particularly when someone's talking about success, is they always mention an element of luck. And, and it, it can, uh, what my realisation was just then was that it can't be just luck. It, it can't it, because every single coach says it. Yes, there is some element of luck. But the fact that it is in every single coach's um, summation of what worked for them, that, you know, you mentioned we took away the pressure, we focused on building our skills over winning. They, yeah. they always say there's some luck. And so when you say, like, we didn't have an injury, maybe you had the right fitness people and staff. You talk about we got the right recruits, maybe because they saw that you were going out and seeking that, like, no pressure type mentality and let's just go and enjoy each other's company, that that's what yeah. brought them in. It's, I find it yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's, you're right. You make your own luck. Um, but I guess what I'm what I'm saying is you look at some coaches like Rick Nolan, he was my senior assistant coach when I was the VFLW Thunder coach, and he always said to me, you always speak about premierships. It's like the key ingredient. Even if you think your team's going to come last and get the wooden spoon, you always talk about the pinnacle because that's why players play. Now, I think he's got it. There's a bit of truth to what he's saying, but in the women's game in particular, a lot of girls play the game for very different reasons to why men play the game. And when you look in the women's space, they're even at the highest level, like we're talking AFLW, they, they do want to win, definitely. There, there'll be players there that they'll just do everything in their power to win. But there's also players there that back in the day when they first started playing footy, it wasn't about that at all. They, they built that competitive beast in them over the years and they'd gotten to the highest level through working hard and, and all of that. So now they're probably at that level where they want to win. But a lot of players who first start playing the game, it's, um, it's not about winning at all. It's actually more about being part of a community, especially here in Darwin. So many girls I speak to, I say to them, why did you come to the club? Like, How did you hear about us? And um, And I get the same response from a lot of new players is, I need to make friends. I'm new to the territory. I um, I feel like I want to be part of something, like a sense of belonging. They don't say because they want to win a flag. <laughs> but in the boys' space, like I coached a few boys at, at the Lions Academy when we'd combine, and it was all about winning. It was all about um, the, that competitive beast is already, it's almost like um, genetics or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's like you're born and you just want to win and you wrestle and all those things that boys do when they're younger. I know it's gender stereotyping, but it's just, it's the truth. Like you, you watch some kids play and the girls are all about being social and talking and communicating and boys are like grunting and whatever and wrestling on the ground because they want to, they want to um, win or they want to be the best. So I think, Rick, Rick Nolan, he, he's on the right track. He's got a very successful record um, in the men's and now in the women's space as well. But I think um, for me as a coach, I, I took away from that that actually putting pressure on girls, it can, it can really lead to – it can be detrimental to performance. But in the boys' space, it seemed they thrive on it a bit more. So I think there's a, yeah, coaching boys and girls, it, there's a huge difference there. And, um, yeah, I think that that first season, 
because there was such a focus on being a team and working together and developing, helping each other grow, all those sort of things, we actually were successful. Like we measure success, really. We missed out on the grand final by two points after the siren, I think it was. Um, so Nightcliffe got us on in that occasion. But I'd already measured the success. You know, before that game, I already thought we'd, we'd ticked off <laughs> a lot yeah. of our KPIs for the season. So there was little pressure and, yeah, it goes to show. So what was your focus then going out of that first season and into the second season? Yeah, so that's when the mindset shifts, doesn't it? That's when yeah. girls go, well, we nearly made the grand final. We should, <laughs> we should win next year. So you've got to really rein it in and go, yeah, we had a good season, but we've got to retain talent. We've got to keep developing. Clubs will recruit really well. Uh, clubs will improve. So we're going, to, um, we're going to make sure that we develop our culture and still be quite professional with it as well. Uh, so, yeah, last season my main focus was around injury prevention. Uh, we had quite a few Div 1 players break their hands um, and concussion. They were the big ones, falling when they're getting tackled or being um, doing the tackling. So tackling or being tackled, there were quite a lot of mechanisms for broken arms and then um, and quite a, quite a lot of concussions because players are going in to the footy, um, a ground ball, with a really poor um, structure behind it or a poor... Um, what's like the te- word? Technique. Technique, like thank technique you. Ball, yeah. <laughs> really poor technique. And you watch AFLW compared to the men's and you see it right now. They just, they just go gung-ho and they don't have any kind of duty of care around who's, who's there or themselves. <laughs> They're just like full head first in. But um, it's getting better, definitely. So, yeah, I started to look at other ways to um, prevent any injuries. We've got a full-time S&C coach. We just purchased Team Builder. So we've got an app that girls can jump on and do their extras over the weekend or through the week and we can keep them accountable. But also I think around some of the technique, I've engaged some rugby league specialists come in from, um, it's actually Kira Zarafa's dad. Uh, I don't know which club they're from, actually I should know that. But anyway, they, they play rugby league and they coach rugby league and they've come in and they've done tackling sessions. And then we, um, <clears throat> we engaged um, a fella from the defence Tristan was his name, and he came in and did some grappling. And I learned a ton of um, around body position, game awareness, how to take advantage of your opponent when you're in a position where they've got the footy or you've got the footy. So, yeah, that was my focus last year. And then this year, funnily enough, um, last year making the grand final. And then, yeah, this year... Like I say, measure of success for me isn't always about winning the cup, but I think if we this season can be really um, more attacking in our game plan. I've been watching a lot of the um, Collingwood play, actually. It's funnily enough. <laughs> a lot of Collingwood play. I know. <laughs> been reviewing the game, ready for the Lions. Um, and Collingwood, they play this really messy, chaotic um, almost, I think Craig McRae, their coach, he has this saying where it's like play on instinct and they play this really, this brand of footy that's quite exciting and entertaining. We're nowhere near Collingwood level, but I think we can, even in the women's space, we can learn from that 
I know Doc Clark, he's the coach at the Adelaide Crows, and he he actually coaches with the men as well. And he's like, this is this is rubbish. Why do we have to be different? We, we can use some of our game plan from the men's program, and we can 100% incorporate it into our women's program. And he's hugely successful at picking out bits that fit across both. Um, and I think that in the women's space now, we're probably seeing that in the territory. Like you look at Pint... Uh, you look at Nightcliff and, and us, and we do play a really attacking brand of footy, and I'd love to play um, more attacking even <laughs> without being too risky. So, yeah, the, the focus has changed from rebuilding in that first year to then um, working on our injury prevention and our SNC and getting our body in the, in the best possible shape to now being at the skill level where we can be more attacking and um, and go more directly, I guess, to goal rather than out wide. TIO, it's probably 10 kicks in the girls' game <laughs> from one end to the other. So why are we doing that? I don't know. That, these are the questions that I've got in my head. Yeah, I love it. So take me back to the lead-up to grand final and grand final day. You played against Pint, who was coached by Rick Nolan, as you mentioned uh, earlier, Rick, and you unfortunately didn't win the grand final. Tell me a little bit about what happened that day. Well, how do I say it? Pint were definitely the better team. And we'd actually played them two weeks before. And we we really controlled that game. We only won by, I think, around 16 points, but we should have won by about 30. We missed some really easy goals. And Pint just, they just went to water. I don't know what happened on that day. But um, they did not play a very good game. And we clearly played a much better game. And then come the grand final, we um, had a few issues with our personnel, let's say, who um, a player who won best on ground for both of our finals was unavailable for the grand final. We did everything in our power to fly her up and, um, and be part of it, but it just simply didn't work. She had a family commitment and, like, no love lost at all. She's a great mate and a, a person who I really admire and I hope she gets drafted. She's definitely good enough. Um, but, yeah, to not have Steph O'Brien, I know it's one player, but, um, yeah, was our, was our best player. I'm sure Rick Nolan was like, you beauty, <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when he found out. I kept it on the down low. I didn't tell anyone, and it really only came out on the team sheet the day before that she was going to be unavailable for that game. Um, during the grand final, we also had another recruit do her knee, her ACL, in the second quarter. Um, not making excuses. Pint on they had they had a day. They had a real, real crack at it, and we just um, didn't didn't deal with the pressure very well and didn't respond. <clears throat> and you can imagine the mindset of some of the players when you find out that one of your key players is unavailable. And I think that um, that contributed to the loss. And then to have a player go down in the second quarter as well. When, you, when you're playing those sort of games, um, I liken it to um, who was it recently for the Demons with the Maynard incident? Oh, yeah, yeah. Brayshaw. So Brayshaw goes down and, and then the whole team has to somehow muster up the motivation to keep going when they know one of their mates is really hurting. So, yeah, it can, it can really impact the game and how it goes. But I just thought, to be fair, even if we had Steph, even if we didn't have the knee injury, I think Pint were probably too good on the day and we learnt a lot from it. 
Yeah, and I think losing like key players like that also changes your structures a little bit in that, you know, they play their position within a structure so well. Um, yeah. One of the things I noticed in watching that grand final is I thought Jasmine Hill was dominant in ruck and it looked yeah. like Waratah just really struggled to transition out of their back line and into their, you know, forward half. Yeah, and that's where Steph was going to play. So she actually dominated Jazzy Hewitt in our game two weeks before and won a lot of clearances that I probably wasn't expecting to win. And Jazz really went into her shell. So I think she injured herself actually in that prelim um, towards the end of the game. But but anyway, I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, you're right. Positionally, the ruck and against an AFLW ruck, you need someone there who's got the nous and experience and we simply didn't have the clientele or the personnel to cover off on such a great player. And Jazzy, to her credit, she um, she had an outstanding game. And so moving into this year, you're with this season focusing on attack. What's pre-season been like so far and what are you most excited about for this season? Yeah, it's been great. I've really enjoyed this preseason. We've trained all together. So we've actually got three teams this year, well, four including under-18 girls. Our women's squad, um, I don't like to say Div 1 or Div 2. We've got a squad of players from under-18s all the way through to our senior women. And we've all trained together. We've gotten big numbers. We've gone over to Belle Ewan um, on Tuesday this week. So we've got a new partnership with the Bell Ewan community, got the ferry over to Mandora, and then um, there were buses and Larrakeer Nation and all sorts of people there ready to pick us up. It was really, really cool. And there's some great players on Bell Ewan, men and women, that will come across and play for our, um, our Waratah teams. Now, they might not play Premier League. They might. Um, who knows? But um, they're certainly going to help our numbers with our Division One and Division Two team. Um, so, yeah, to have, to have three teams, um, four including our under-18s, is pretty exciting. We just need to have the depth now. So now it's about recruiting, um, retaining some talent, getting some talent back. We'll have a couple of players who will come in from interstate, but the majority of them will be based here in Darwin. Who do you think people need to look out for at Waratah this season? Who's some of your sort of players that you think can can be your real movers and shakers? Yeah, well, um, we just had one of our players last season who I thought was going to retire. She actually got chaired off in one of the games. And I was like, what? Um, <laughs> in Lauren, Lauren Pluka, who's only played for two seasons. It's her third season coming up and she's going to go around again. And I'm really excited about that. She's not only a fantastic athlete, she's clearly our, our fittest player getting around. Um, but she has some real skill and I guess if she was kicking around in her 20s, playing, playing footy in her 20s, she, she would have been a real, um, a real pick for draft. Um, not to say that she won't be drafted, but she's just getting on a little bit in age and, um, yeah, playing, playing the sport a little bit older in her career. But, no, it's, it's really cool to have her back. She'll play a number of roles for Tars. I think Aggie... Um, Aggie Lippo, she is going to be dynamite. She's looking really fit. She's been um, part of our Belluan partnership. She's like the role model. They all call out for Aggie. Where's Aggie? Where's Aggie? <laughs> so she's our um, our connector with the Belluan community over there. And I think she's going to have a real big season um, at Waratah. She was just she was. I think she was on track to win the the leading goal kicker, I think she kicked 17 goals in four games. 
just think about that, 17 goals in four games. She ended up coming third in the in the in the goal kicking awards and she was out for like 10 rounds with a dislocated shoulder. So, if she can remain injury free and that's when we talk about that little element of luck, then she's going to have a she'll have a cracking season. Um, definitely. We do have a couple of recruits that'll be coming in, but yeah, they're not all confirmed and I think they'll they'll play their part as well. So, um yeah, let me have a think. I've only said two names. But really, I know, I know I've mentioned Steph before, but the team, it's not just one player. You, you need to make sure that you've got a really strong um, junior pathway. You've got a really strong um, Division One and Two pathway because they're your players who are going to then be called into the Premier League team when injuries occur and they'll take their opportunities. Um, so, yeah, it's really important that we build a, a strong team culture so you made a prelim in your first year which you only lost as you said by two points after the siren you then make a grand final in second year you don't want to measure success on winning premierships how do you measure success this season well i think if we're looking at vision and game plan like i said i really i think clubs are becoming more attacking the better clubs the stronger the top four are really are quite, they're fit, they're, they're quick and they've got great skills and they're not, um, <clears throat> they're not going the long way around. They're, they're going corridor and they're, they're hitting targets and they've got big, tall targets. So I think our measure of success will be around how our game plan holds up um, against some of those teams and whether we've bitten off a bit more than we can chew. I don't know. I'm interested to see how we go. I think that we've probably got the personnel and the skill to go up a notch with our game plan. Um, they're, the, they're the sort of KPIs that I'll be looking at. Like the end result, the outcome at the end around finals and the cup and all of that, that's that's all a byproduct of all the other little processes along the way. So we get our S&C right, we get our um, recovery right, which I think last season we weren't great at. A lot of girls didn't do recovery. We didn't have a real recovery regime. We just expected girls to do their flush run, jump in the ice bath when we didn't really have a, a set routine. So with Team Builder and having an S&C coach in um, Melissa Campbell, Shorty we call her. So Shorty is very organised and she's put up sessions for the girls to do. And I can already see, even though we're in pre-season, we have far more buy-in around um, keeping everyone accountable and the season hasn't even started compared to the first year where we didn't really have that accountability. It wasn't about that. It was about the rebuilding. But now we've rebuilt to a stage where we should be able to maintain being competitive against the top teams in the NTFL. Uh, we've got to get those little little things right um, that maybe aren't so much on-field. I think the off-field stuff, the training, embedding the game plan, making sure that it's going to hold up to a good test and then getting our body right, then I think that'll be the proof at the end. You mentioned against the best teams. Who are the best teams? Who are the teams to look out for this season? That one is so transient. You just you just don't know. Pint will obviously be up there again. Um, I think St Mary's has done an exceptional job in recruiting, um, and they'll be strong, definitely. And then you've got buffs who are very physical and always get local talent. So they're always in and around it. 
Um, Nightcliff will be the one for me, Nightcliff losing their coach in Shannon Miller um, and losing some players. I don't think there's a shock in saying that. I think they will probably um, look a little bit different <laughs> compared to seasons. Not to say that they're not going to be successful. I'm interested to see how they, how they stack up. Um, and then when you look at some of our teams that are on that cusp, like Tiwi Bombers, really we only beat them by a point, I think, in the second half of the season last year. And they were, they were really competitive in patches. And then other times they were quite weak. But, yeah, throughout the season, I think Tiwi's probably got an opportunity to be quite strong and be somewhere in that middle of the range. Who have I missed, Jacob? Well, I was going to. So, so first of all, um, interesting you bring up Shannon Miller because she's in the next episode of the Mind Your Body uh-huh. Show. So keen to talk to her. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to ask, without going through and feeling like you need to mention every club, I just want you to mention one. Who do you think would be has the potential to be a real mover? Like, so probably from mm. the bottom half of the ladder through to maybe not even make finals, but to see massive improvement outside of the big clubs that you typically hear of being like Waratah, Pint and Nike probably. Mm. Um, I know you've got Saints and Buffs in there as well that are also very good Buffs, only recently won a premiership recently. Yeah. Um, but outside of those clubs, who do you think has the potential to move up the ladder a bit? I think it's still, yeah, I think it's Tiwi for sure. They've got some good links to players interstate. They've got exceptional talent at their disposal on the island. It's just a matter of putting it all together. Um, they did announce a coach, I think, recently. See, this is the thing. Like, I was chatting to NT News and they were asking me the same question. And I said, I don't even know who's coaching half the teams. They've had so much movement. Like, Saints have got a new coach in Ryan Smith. Um, Wanderers must have a new coach. Obviously, Nightcliff have a new coach. Um, Buffs, I think, I'm still got Mel Taylor. Southern Districts has got a new coach. Yeah. So, Palmerston. I don't know, like, Palmerston, I'm not sure about Palmerston if they've got a new coach, but I, I think, um, yeah, they're going to find it hard again. I think last season was really tough for them, and I do feel for them. Same with Wanderers. Palmerston and Wanderers are very strong local clubs, and they rely on local, t- local talent, but um, they're starting to fall behind a little bit now. And it's not through any fault of their own. I think it's it's tough because the Palmies out of the way a little bit and you've got Southern Districts really quite strong at the moment um, in the junior space, I would say. Palmerston have some really good juniors coming through, but I don't know whether they're going to stay at the club. I hope they do. Um, so I think, yeah, I think Palmerston and Wanderers are going to find it a little bit tough again. I really hope they... Um, they, they have enough in the way of recruitment and, and players each week. But I think Tiwi. Tiwi is the one to watch. They've just had a tiffle. I don't know whether you've seen that. The tiffle, the Tiwi Island Football League is on currently and it's the first year that they've had the women play. So off the back of that, I think there'll be a fair bit of traction. Girls will be finishing that season going, what do I do now? And then they'll roll into their NTFL season. Interesting. Uh, last one. What do you think over the years has been the biggest improvement in women's football since its sort of inception, maybe what was about mm. 10, a little bit less than 10 years ago or so? I've got it 100%. It's kicking. But it, from a skill point of view, I'm just absolutely baffled when I watch AFLW, even NTFL, the amount of girls that can kick 40 to 50 metres. 10 years ago or even five years ago, 
that was not the case. Yeah, even when I was coaching in the Brisbane Lions Academy, Queensland under-18s, where a lot of those girls were drafted to the Lions or the Suns, our kicking was not could never compared to the Victorian and um, South Australian teams. Their kicking was so much stronger. But now if you watch up here NTFL, I'm really impressed with the fact that um, female players can hit targets. Uh, I think our marking's still got a long way to go. I'm I'm definitely um, yeah looking at a lot of a lot of games where we should be taking marks even at AFLW level and they just drop with no pressure at all. So I think that that's a fair way to go. But the kicking element, um, yeah. What do you think? Do you watch much AFLW or do you see the kicking improving? Yeah, well, I do. I, and I have interviewed Phil Harper, who's the football football operations manager at the Adelaide Crows, on this podcast, yeah. and we were talking about this. And he said that if you compared the at Crows' most recent premiership side from a couple of seasons ago, and you got them to play against their first season premiership side, mm-hmm. the most recent premiership side would win by seventeen goals because yeah. the skill level has improved so much, and specifically kicking. And yep. the reason why he attributes that is that so many more young girls are now playing the game from a younger age. So the girls that are yep. coming through now that are around 18 years old, six years ago were 12. The, the mm. ones that are playing that were playing back then that first season really only started picking up and kicking the footy around then. And now you've got girls that are kicking the footy around from the age of 12 that are coming through into the AFLW and they've yep. just had much more touch of the ball, um, kind of like the 10,000-hour rule. So, you know, I think that because you're seeing it on TV at the AFLW level, the highest level, Mm. it's now filtering down. There's more girls playing it. And as a result, there's more girls kicking a footy, touching a footy, hand-passing, marking, all that stuff with a football at a younger age. And so there's not just more girls doing it, they're doing it from a younger age and they're getting more experience with the football in their hands. Yeah, and just the technique as well. Like you think of Oz kickers around that eight, nine, even under tens level, you've got females playing with the boys, so girls and the boys, so the gap's actually um, far less because you've got the same age. Really, at that age, there's no difference. There's no physical difference with boys and girls. So, you know, you look at it, Emily Bates um, plays at Hawthorne now but did a lot of her footy at Yeronga where I played and Brisbane Lions, and she was the best kicker by a country mile, hands down, at our club. And the reason was her dad was one of the coaches and he brought her along as a six, seven-year-old and she always had a footy in her hands and she played with the boys up until the time where they said, you can't play with the boys anymore. I think it was maybe under 12s where they said that and she got like best on ground medals, you know, won the best in the league, all of that sort of stuff. But her kicking was so much better because not only is she practising it more but she's getting it modelled at a younger age, the correct technique, the amount of girls that I see that um, 10 years ago, first time picking up a footy, it's always a two-hand ball drop. You watch Oz kickers, yeah, they'll drop it with two hands to begin with. And then as they get a bit older, they'll start to develop that balance arm and they'll start to develop a one-hand ball drop. And that's where you get your power from. Two-hand ball drop, you simply cannot kick as far as a one-hand ball drop. It's like just the mechanics um, of it because you're in such a closed position as soon as you open up your shoulders, you can then swing that leg plane through and you're going to get tons more power. So 
I think that, yeah, Harps is right for sure. That's the main reason why we're playing footy at a younger age. We've got Auskick. It's a bit more inclusive with the girls. And I think playing with the boys at that younger age, it does it does spur some of the girls on a little bit more and it also improves their skill level because it's modelled. You've got um, coaches modelling the right kicking technique and you've got players um, also modelling it and then girls get to see, oh, right, that's how you do a one-hand ball drop. And then by the time they get to under-12s and under-14s, they know how to how to do it. I've got um, a girl at Tars who's only 15. She can kick left and right, easy one-hand ball drop. That's mm. just unheard of. Back in the day, that would never have happened. Kathy Spark, who plays at the Lions, she was at Wilson Grange and great athlete, unbelievable athlete. I don't know whether you know her, but Google her after this, Jacob, because her body is like a um, one of those anatomy and physiology um things you get at uni, you know, you're doing anatomy and fizz and you can like pull the quad off and the hamstring here and the calf muscle. She, she's like a bodybuilder. So she came down to training but she couldn't, she couldn't run and kick for a whole season. So what she would do instead of learning it, how to do it, she would run, then she would stop. She'd be so quick. She'd run away from her opponent. Then she would go to a, a complete stop and then kick. She did that for one whole season. Now is an absolute powerhouse for the lines. <laughs> so say her name again just so people don't have to quickly pick rewind. Kathy Spark. <laughs> there you go, you can yeah. Google that. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's amazing. So interestingly, so having worked with Danielle Ponta for three seasons, I noticed that she holds the ball different to most people. So she will hold it at the top of the footy on the yeah. side there with one hand. When you get taught to kick a football, usually you know you've got your uh, ring finger going straight down the seam or even um, the, the rude finger, one of those two fingers going straight down. I've seen people kind of tilt the footy a little bit so it's a bit more vertical and they sort of move their hands more from straight down the ball to uh, fingers pointing slightly more forward. Danielle holds it at the top and then is able to kind of swing her foot through on a bit, on a bit more of a pendulum. And I asked her about it of, uh, actually several times and she sort of said she doesn't know why she does it, she just does it. So she's obviously, you could argue that there's genetics there, but I think that the reason why she's so good is that she's just grown up playing football from about the age of two and there's a lot of it in the backyard with family barbecues and things like that. So I think that's going to help. But what do you think about holding the football? Because I've often thought that, yes, women do play with a slightly smaller football, but I think also having slightly smaller hands, which guys can also have with a guy-sized football, that that Mm. actually can make it better for that one-handed ball drop and being able to kick with more power. Yeah, it definitely is a contributing factor, size of hand, size of footy. I find that a lot of girls do actually do exactly what DP does where they hold the footy at the top um, and they simply do it because it feels better. They can actually control the ball more. I think that if if you learn how to bounce the footy early, you can actually kick with a one-hand ball drop easier because when you're bouncing, it's the exact same motion. So really your thumb should be almost down the seam. So if we think of like the W, you've got like the W going down the footy, and then as your balance arm comes off, that, that wrist rotation should happen. Now, a lot of players, they like a lot of girls, they don't do that. They just hold it at the top and then literally go like that, drop the, <laughs> drop the footy, <laughs> and who knows where the ball's going to go. So that it should be a guide down towards your um, towards your boot. Now, a lot of girls they drop the footy when they do that. It just simply goes out of their hand. 
because they haven't practiced that motion when you when you're bouncing the footy. If you just you know, as as a young boy or a young kid, I reckon that's what boys do. They get the footy and they're like bouncing it around, and then so they've already got that control. Maybe young girls aren't doing that as much, and I think that it's it becomes harder as you get older if you're young. So it's interesting with Ponta because she would have definitely been modelled that sort of technique in the way of the one you just described, not her current technique. So she's um, adjusted her ball drop or her grip on the footy to suit her, and clearly it works. She's got an amazing kick, absolute freak of an athlete, can do can kick from wherever, goal sense in spades. But I think the main point is that as long as it's a one-hand ball drop, it really doesn't matter grip-wise. As long as you've got your one hand that can guide it down onto the boot and it's it's pretty um, predictable, then that's okay. It doesn't have to be exact. You know how they've got those footies now with the handprint on them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, you can handprint like to handball or whatever or to kick. I think that you've got to be a bit more flexible with your coaching and, and the kids that you're coaching or the players that you're coaching because they will adapt and change. I find left foot kickers have a different grip as well. So it's just, it's not a one size fits all model. Yeah, I, I highly recommend anyone try and get some footage of Danielle kicking it. Watch AFLW on Foxtel and just, um, you know, pause it, um, get a clip on YouTube or something and just go slow, like drag it across really slow. But have a look. It's, it's not on top of the ball, it's to the side of the ball, but it's still yeah. at the top of the side yeah. of the ball. Um, yep. And it's just because it's skinnier there. Uh, so it's it's a very, I think it's one of the best kicking actions I've ever seen in women's footy. Yeah. So I yeah, think, no, agreed. Um, from what you've said, I think for any uh, young girl in particular listening to this, but any female of any age, male as well, but we're really focusing here on females, um, the best thing to do from what you've said, from what I'm taking away, is to just get yourself a footy and just walk around with that football everywhere you go as much as possible and practice bouncing the ball on both hands. Yep. Yep, yep definitely. <laughs> Highly <right>. recommended. <laughs> I'll do that. All right. Um, Heidi, I just want to thank you for your time today on the Mind Your Body Show and acknowledge you for all of the work that you do um, with women's football in particular, more football more broadly. The community more broadly beyond that with the club, with teaching, everything that you do, um, it's amazing. Thank you so much for all that. Acknowledge you for all that. Um, any final thoughts before we get into this 10 in 10? <laughs> no, we've chatted for about an hour and 15 though, so I definitely yeah. can talk underwater. <laughs> Very easy to chat to you and I'm sorry for taking up so much time when you probably want to no. get the Collingwood no, reviews about like <laughs> what's going to happen. I've watched enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it then. You ready to go with this 10 and 10? Sure. As you've been talking, I've been taking notes and I am just looking for the first thing that comes to mind when I say each of these. Number one, growing up in Brisbane. Rugby league. <laughs> Number two, the Brisbane Lions. Oh, it's got to be the cup. Come on, Premiership Cup would just be the icing on the cake. Number three, individual sports versus team sports. Team sports. Number four, Gaelic footy. Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Number five, I love how these flow really nicely. Number five, living in the UK. Uh, Travel. 
Number six, relationships. Jeez. Now we're getting a bit deep. This is in relation to you talking about <laughs> coaching and what you experienced with the Lions. Yeah. Um, being approachable. Number seven, anti-footy. Oh, it's like nowhere else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Number eight, the Thunder Women's Academy manager role. Challenging. Number nine, Waratah Football Club. Um, some a place that I hold dearly to my heart. And number 10 is a generic question which I ask everybody. If you could go forward in time or back in time, which would you go to and why? Now, this is time travel, so you can come back to now. It's just you can go, but you can only time travel once to one destination and one time period. So where would you go to and why would you go to that point? Oh, like a place in the world you're talking Oh, it could be like it could be five thousand years ago. Time. It could be yeah, or it could be either. It could be another planet you know, if you really wanted to. People ask me this sometimes about like growing up, and I always say that high school. I just loved high school. I never wanted it to end. I could easily go back to year eight and do it all over again. And it was yeah, that would be my answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually really liked high school. Too. I reckon year ten or eleven maybe would have been ideal. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, la- so, last one. Normally, I don't ch- I don't ask this question. But I'm just going to throw it in. What's next? What's next? I do not know what's next. I think after this year of coaching, I'll weigh up whether I want to continue in that space or go into a different um, pathway. Uh, yeah, I think teaching just plodding along at the moment. I'd love to go back into full-time coaching, but I just don't think that it's something that will happen in the very near future. Um, And maybe I'm not 100% cut out to be the ruthless coach that you kind of need to be at that, at the highest level. (laughs) And I'm going to ask a personal, you know, a little bit selfish question here, because I want to know this for myself. This is something I've been weighing up in life and we'll, uh, I'll talk about it you know, while we're recording so everyone else can hear. So I, I personally love teaching. I'm full-time teaching at Darwin High, as you know. Um, you're just a straight across the oval at the middle school. Um, I love my job. It pays well. I get school holidays. You know, the work hours are great. Fits in with my family, with having kids. It's it's pretty easy work for me. Um, I love the relationships that you build. But I've also got this passion for coaching myself, and my passion for coaching is fitness-related specifically. And I would love to go and do it full-time, and I do it online. You know, I use Team Builder as well, like you guys are using. I absolutely love that platform to deliver the programs, and I love working with, like, Aussie Rules footballers. I'm doing all one-on-one type stuff and small group stuff, not, like, um, clubs. And then other people training for half marathons, marathons, you know, weight loss, everything. So I love doing that. I'm just not sure about that transition. And even if I really want to get out of teaching, I do like it, but, I've just got this urge for running my own business and doing the fitness stuff full time. Mm. Where do you sit with like with teaching and and life in general? Is it something that you just keep doing forever? I don't think it'll be forever. No, I think having a break after I think it was my fifteenth year when I came up here to coach, and it was perfect timing. I needed um, a bit of a break from teaching. It was getting. Um, pretty exhausting and coaching as well. I think in that final year of teaching, I coached four different teams. 
and I just thought I can't continue. This is not sustainable. I either become a coach or I go back to teaching and don't try and cross over too much. So for me, yeah, I just think that teaching is something that I love. I'm very passionate about it. But I think when I look at coaching, coaching for me is a different passion. It's a different love. You certainly don't do it for the money. The money is good in teaching and it's always going to be there. Kids are always going to need to be taught. So it's very stable. But um, does it always get me out of bed in the morning? Probably not as much as something that I'm really passionate about being sport, coaching, developing people and um, and forming and building relationships and those sort of things that you just mentioned before as well. I personally think that five years is a good time frame for teachers to then take a break. I think you kind of burn yeah. out around that point. Um, I'm at the end of my fourth year now. So I'm really thinking about this, and I've been there before twice and have left the profession. How many years do you reckon you've got left full-time teaching? <laughs> what am I up to? I was trying to work it out the other day. I think I'm on 18, that'd be right, 15, 16, 17. I think this is my 18th teaching year. It's a tricky one because when I went overseas, I taught for like six months and then travelled, and then so I'm trying to piece it all together. Yeah, I think when I get to my 20 years, I think I'll be um, I'll be looking back and reflecting on where to next for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it's forever. I think you're right. I think you need um, a year or two where you can just reconnect with something else and then you can you can go back to it. You know it's always going to be there. But, yeah, 15 years of, of teaching, I definitely became um, very tired and fatigued and I almost not became bitter but I didn't enjoy it as much. And then once I had the break with footy up here and now I'm back into it, I'm, I've got a new passion for it. Mm, yeah. Do you think when you do get to that 20-year mark that you'll go, that it'll be coaching that you go into? I don't know. I think that, um, I think it takes, like I say, a different breed. I'm not sure I'm made of that breed to be a full-time coach. I had a little sneak peek of it for two years when I moved up here initially and I loved every minute of it, but, geez, it was draining and it was um, exhausting and fatiguing mentally, physically, the whole lot, um, managing so many people. You think a footy team, like at TARS at the moment, sometimes we've got 50-odd at training, 40 to 50 at training, and we're managing all of these people and it's, it's a lot. It's definitely um, a lot to handle. So I'd love to say yes, Jacob, but I am also mindful of my own mental health (laughs) (laughs) and looking after myself and having time to spend with family and friends as well. Yeah, I I sometimes get asked why I haven't pursued like more of a career in like a high-level strength and conditioning role like the AFL and it's for that reason I started to look at that. You know, I did a double degree in sports science and teaching. I then fell into a teaching job because there were so many of them around. It paid well. It was really easy yeah. to get into. I kind of got stuck with that. I then sort of did some stuff on the side. I had some exposure to AFL clubs and other institutes of sports around the country, built some great contacts. And what I saw were people that were, you know, burning out in a different way to teaching. But it was like majorly, it wasn't just burning out. It was like relationships falling apart. You know, strength and conditioning coaches in the AFL uh, and even in institutes of sport, you know, it's it's so, as you've already alluded to so many times in this episode, it's so time-consuming and your family gets put on the back burner for that. Mm-hmm. 
And that was something that I didn't, I didn't want to go through. I wanted to prioritize my family. And so I feel very grateful for the opportunities I've had where I haven't even had to leave Darwin and I've been lucky enough to mm. work with the Crows, you know, remotely, work at the Institute of Sport here in the Northern Territory and, and even like local clubs like what you're doing, you know, having done fitness myself with a few. Um, I feel grateful for that. But I don't think people realise until you get a little sneak peek inside um, and in a sanctum, how tough it is to work in high performance sport. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's not all rosy. It's mm. it takes a lot of work and a lot of managing people and relationships, and it's not for everyone. That's what I say to a lot of people, and they say, "Oh, it must be amazing coaching." When I had the job at um, AFLNT, a lot of people would say, "Oh, you're in such a great position," and and yeah, I, I loved it and I was really passionate about it. But I don't think it's for everyone. I think you, like for you, for example, maybe when your kids are a bit older, you might start to think about a full-time business or a full-time coaching gig with um, with your fitness. But you, your priorities are your family. So for me, I guess it's the same. My relationship is my priority. And when that starts to waver and <laughs> you're away for 26 weekends of the year, you have to then weigh it up and say, is it all worth it? Uh, Heidi, so it's going to be a wait and see what happens next for you. Um, but you've got immediate things to worry about first and it sounds like it's going to be an exciting time at the Waratah Football Club this coming season. So best of luck with it. Even more so, best, more immediate best of luck for this weekend. Uh, I really hope the luck. Brisbane Lions. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for coming on and um, spending so much time with me today. No worries at all, Jacob. I had a ball. Thanks. What's the most overlooked part of running but the most important? Your mechanics. My new course, Running Mechanics 101, is a nine-module course which will teach you how to run more efficiently and effectively. For free, instant access, simply head on over to jacobandre.com.